As companies scale to millions or even billions of users, it can be far too easy to focus on process and operations and forget the why. Why are we building these products and who are they for? For Margaret Gould Stewart, Vice President of Product Design at Facebook, questions like this are always top of mind. And in this episode, she shares some of her tactics for making sure that Facebook's mission is at the core of all their products. We chat with Margaret about why storytelling is the most fundamental tool for scaling a design team, how measuring success using only a quantitative approach can be misleading, and how to unify culture and work across multiple locations. This is the final episode in our second season of the designbetter.co podcast. We hope you've enjoyed learning about design at scale and are looking forward to next season where we'll be diving into more deep conversations with design leaders. Enjoy this episode and keep designing great products. No one understands the challenges of designing at scale better than Margaret Gould Stewart, VP of Product Design at Facebook. Margaret's managed six of the 10 most visited user experiences on the web and has spent over 20 years leading design and research teams. Before joining Facebook, Margaret managed the user experience team at YouTube, where she oversaw the largest redesign in the company's history, including the YouTube player page. As if influencing the design of the places we visit most online weren't an accomplishment enough, Margaret is also an accomplished speaker and has graced the TED stage on multiple occasions. Margaret Gould Stewart, what a pleasure it is to have you on the show. Welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So we want to start uh, our conversation here by uh, taking a look at your your view of um, the history of the web because you have this unique perspective. You've got um, you've seen the the public history of the web like few others um, from your time at Lycos during the Web 1.0 era to your current role at Facebook. You've just witnessed a lot of milestones and tipping points. How's the public attitude towards web companies shifted over time um, and how is that influencing the way that design works today? Well, I think that uh, it's definitely been an interesting ride over the past 20 years. And I think there's a couple of threads that have carried through the different companies and projects that I've worked on um, that I have found particularly interesting and fulfilling. And those are ones that uh, open up systems that were usually just reserved for a few people to many people. And in, in many of these contexts, like a tripod, which is one of the first big websites that I worked on, it's one of the original homepage building sites. It's really allowing everyone to publish their ideas in a way that was available all around the world. And while that seems like a very obvious thing today, it was quite revolutionary at the time uh, to be able to do that and to, you know, kind of have your voice be heard um, regardless of where you lived or worked or where you went to school or how much money you had is very exciting uh, time. And I think what we've seen as more and more people have taken advantage of that is you see that democratization of systems creep into different parts of society, um, you know, in terms of the way that businesses evolve, the way that govern governments run. And, you know, I think that has created a fair amount of disruption in the way that these systems and ecosystems operate. And I think, you know, as increasingly large percentage of the human population starts to engage in these systems, 
the companies that are behind it, whether it's Facebook or you know Google or you know any other number of technology companies, our responsibility around you know how we develop and deploy products grows along with that impact. And I think for designers in particular, the way that I've been thinking about it, uh, in particular over the last couple of years, reflecting on uh, you know some of the things that have been going on, uh, you know, with with the company that I'm at now, Facebook. I've started to think of myself and my team as less uh, product designers and more as digital urban planners. Um, Because in reality, when you're developing products that are used by over 2.2 billion people and, you know, all around the world, you're really starting to get into, uh, you know, needing to understand things like public safety and um, public health and, um, the way that political science operates and the way economics work. And that's very, very exciting, but it's also a lot of responsibility. And it really points uh, to the need for designers and engineers to not only kind of widen the aperture of what they see as their responsibility and their role in this, but also to you know constantly be seeking outside expert advice um, because obviously no one person can be expert in all of these different fields. So it's been such an interesting time to go from a place where you think, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, designing this website to, oh, you know, I'm designing a user experience to, you know, now, wow, I'm, I'm actually designing systems, ecosystems and things that, you know, have pretty broad impact, uh, not only on individual people, but you know, potentially on the way um, systems work in society. And that's exciting. But again, it's a a big responsibility. And it's something I think designers need to be very intentionally thoughtful about. And also that we need to be thoughtful about in terms of design education, that uh, universities and different design programs need to think really seriously about how to bring that sense of responsibility and breadth of responsibility to people as early in their careers as possible. Margaret, so... Given your your leadership role, a lot of these companies that have had such a big impact over the years wanted to talk to you about leadership. And I, I first got to know about you from a talk you gave at the Source Conference in 2017, uh, where you spoke about the importance for design leaders to have hands-on creative time. And and you mentioned your love of knitting, and, and my mom is really into knitting, and she's probably the reason I'm a designer, because she's super creative and and loves that kind of hands-on work. Um, could you speak a little bit about why that's important, why this hands-on creative time is important for designers? Yeah, I think it's important for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, for me, because I'm a manager and a leader of a very large team, I don't do a lot of hands-on design work day-to-day anymore. So for me, (laughs) having those creative outlets is incredibly important because I'll just start to go a little bit nuts if I don't have it. Like if you are born, I think everyone is born as a maker and with creative capabilities. Unfortunately, a lot of people kind of get that beaten out of them and in school and and society kind of tells you that you shouldn't do that stuff unless you're one of the best at it, which I think is a tragedy because I think the arts and humanities are uh, hugely important to to everyone, not just the people who excel at them. But anyway, you know, if you get into a manager track, your job is really to make the conditions for other people to do the hands-on work and to, to create those conditions for the work to be great and for those people to be fulfilled. So for me, it's been very important to always have outlets for myself, whether it's knitting or had this uh, stint that I did in watercolor, which was <laughs> incredibly difficult. But even that, I think, 
was really restorative to me because it gave me um, a, a space where I gave my permission, myself permission to be a novice at something. And I think when you're in a very high achieving environment, um, it, it, the expectation of uh, like excellence and expertise in everything, it just causes a lot of stress. And I found actually it was really wonderful to just try to do something new and to not put pressure on myself to be great at it. And then I think, you know, the other thing that's really important about creating like low pressure creative space for yourself is that, you know, when you allow your mind to kind of go loose and to get into zone on doing something, you know, for instance, like knitting, which is fairly meditative in nature, your mind is actually working in the background, thinking through the complicated problems that you weren't able to, you know, maybe work out when you were sitting there looking at your computer screen. You should never mistake downtime for, uh, you know, not doing anything uh, because the human mind is incredibly complex uh, tool and it can often work on multiple tracks at the same time. And I think we probably all had the experience of, you know, doing something that's, you know, quote, kind of mindless or very unrelated, but coming up with one of our best ideas. I tend to come up with great ideas when I'm on long drives. <laughs> I don't know why that is. For some people, it's in the shower. For some people, you know, it's while they're exercising. And, you know, I think creative pursuits are very much like that too. So I think for a bunch of reasons, both for the creative soul um, in particular, if you're in a management position, you don't get to do as much hands-on work but you still have that need. And then also to give yourself the space to uh, just experiment and fail and, uh, and be a novice at something. I think for all those reasons, finding those outlets are incredibly important. That's great. Yeah, I'm, I get find ideas driving as well. As, that's a pretty great time for thinking <laughs> that, and, that and long walks. Um, I wanted to also ask you about measuring success. And you know, tech companies these days are really biased towards data as a source of truth. And you wrote a Medium post, um, or it was taken from a talk that you gave at South by Southwest uh, that was titled, Able Allowed Should Navigating Modern Tech Ethics. And just wanted to read a little quote there where you said that it's easy to forget when we are looking at dashboards and numbers and metrics are just a proxy for something that's usually much more complicated than a single number can describe. So what are, what are some of the ways that you think we can assess success versus just trying to measure it? And, and why is that important? Yeah, I mean, this is something that I've talked about and thought about for many years um, because I think it's it's a very complicated topic. I think sometimes the design community rejects the notion of using data in the design process, and I, I think that's also very problematic. When you are designing at the scale that we're designing at at Facebook, it's actually really irresponsible and somewhat uh, arrogant to not kind of dig into that usage data and try to learn uh, what's going on uh, out in, in the world where your products exist. And that quantitative understanding is actually really invaluable. The problem comes in when you look at it as the only source of wisdom, right? So one of the things that I think is incredibly important is to counterbalance that notion of, okay, here's what's going on with millions, if not billions of people and, you know, the stats and the, the trends but here are some qualitative insights that we've gathered through in-person user experience research, stories that really humanize that and, um, and potentially reveal, you know, situations that are profound and important, but never would have come up in the logs. Um, and, you know, I think every time we take engineers or product managers and designers out into the field and they're able to, you know, observe 
the real people who are using our products, uh, either you know for their personal lives or for their work. In the case of the many businesses that are using Facebook products, that we a get very inspired to do the best job that we can, but we also come back understanding that in those charts and graphs with all of those unfathomable numbers, every single one of those data points is a human being, right? With a family or a livelihood or some goals they're trying to accomplish. And, you know, it, it just brings back the importance and the responsibility that we have to do the best job that we can. In addition, it helps us again to not only understand the what's, which is what the numbers are really good at. This is what people are doing, but it helps us understand the why. Quantitative data is not actually that effective at understanding why those things are happening. And so I think it's really the combination of things that help you get to that point where you're assessing success, not just measuring it, because not everything that's important can be measured. So, you know, it's, it's combining different types of data, both qualitative and quantitative. It's making sure that we never forget that there's humans behind these numbers it's getting people out of, in our case, the Silicon Valley bubble that's very easy to kind of live inside of. Get out. We have the benefit of being able to travel uh, and, and you know, do research in, in countries all around the world um, just to really face on a regular basis the diversity of the population we're designing for and seeing firsthand the impact, um, hopefully positive impact, but sometimes, you know, the areas where the products aren't doing what we want or expect them to do, and then being in a much better position to, uh, to respond to that. I'm going to talk a little bit about operating at scale. Um, we see a lot of companies, a lot of design teams um, hitting scale for the first time because companies actually value design. They see that this is something worth investing in. It can be a durable competitive advantage. That's the good news. The, the bad news is that um, scaling is pretty hard to do, and it's something that you've done a number of times. Uh, curious, as you scale a design team, um, are there inflection points where things get more complicated, things get hairy? Um, and what are those points? When, when does that happen? How do you navigate those transitions? Well, I mean, I th can think of this from my own personal point of view. And as a leader, the inflection points for me, like when I go from a team of um, 20 people where I know them all personally and individually to a team of 400, <laughs> where I can sometimes interact with somebody and then realize embarrassingly late in the conversation that they actually work for me. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Those are not stellar moments for me. Um, and it's particularly problematic because. I aspire to a very personal approach to leadership. Like I really want people to know me and trust me, understand what my values are and feel comfortable coming to me if they have feedback or if they disagree. And that really only happens in a context where you've cultivated trust and you've uh, encouraged uh, people to be truthful and vulnerable. And so I think one of the things as I scale teams that I try to do is try to you know, find different ways to do that at increasing numbers of people. So there was a time uh, when I would meet one-on-one -on -one with every new person who joined uh, my team at Facebook. Eventually, the numbers just got to the point where I couldn't do that anymore. And so then I started to have lunches with people. And then I set up office hours and, you know, constantly reminded people that they were welcome to come and talk with me about small things or big things. And I think that that 
humanizing of leaders within an organization uh, is incredibly important. It doesn't happen by accident. You have to be very intentional about it. And it's very important, not only for the people in the team, but for the leader too, because, and this isn't unique to design. I think this is unique to leadership in general. The larger the organization gets, the less likely you are to get the feedback that you need, which is really ironic because the larger your organization gets, the more influence you have. And, uh, and so it's definitely as much to help people feel connected and supported, but also to help me be successful as a leader because I'm much more likely to get that feedback that I need about the things that I can be doing better if people feel comfortable, you know, kind of meeting with me one-on-one and, and sharing honestly with me. So that's kind of from a, uh, a, a leadership point of view, um, you know, kind of the scaling thing. From an operations point of view, I think what we discovered, you know, fairly early on, in particular on the business design side of Facebook, as we scaled from, you know, just a handful of people to by the end of this year, you know, it would be hundreds and hundreds of designers and researchers working across that organization is you don't get a well-oiled machine for free. Like bringing a bunch of talented designers and researchers together will not necessarily create that structure. So we introduced design program management a number of years ago. Um, Some people call it design operations uh, to create, again, those conditions where people can do their best work, um, to make our communication systems, our meetings uh, as efficient and effective as possible, um, to be really intentional about how we onboard and train people, especially in a domain, in this case, advertising and business, where a lot of people were coming in and were interested and curious, but not necessarily having deep expertise. And all of those things uh, you know, could have fallen by the wayside uh, if we had not really intentionally invested in that team infrastructure. Um, so that, I think, is something that's really important for people to think about in advance and to start to put those hooks in place before kind of things grow out of control, if you will. I think the same can be said for design standards and design systems. You know, there's a bunch of different dimensions around which investing in infrastructure as you scale is something that allows every individual on the team to to work, you know, at greater capacity than they would otherwise. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit crashplan.com slash designbetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com slash designbetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's CrashPlan.com slash designbetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, 
confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash designbetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash designbetter. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. It's interesting you brought up design ops because I think Facebook has the largest design ops org that, that we're aware of. Um, and uh, clearly that's a, a big part of um, how you operate at scale. Um, can you talk about um, how design ops um, interplays with research ops? Is that also a part of what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think research operations is critical. You can imagine, as I was mentioning before, we do a lot of international research. Well, the the logistics of bringing teams of uh, of people from the company to various locations around the world, contracting with local translators to translate the conversations that you we may be having. Um, you know, uh, figuring out where are the usability testing facilities in, you know, a certain area of Mumbai that we could, I mean, it, you know, the, the logistics are kind of extraordinary and, uh, and the volume of demand is, is huge. And so the research operations team is absolutely critical to making sure that we uh, have that infrastructure in place. And not every team is kind of reinventing that over and over again. Um, and instead, their time is spent doing the expert research <laughs> that they were hired to do. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that is absolutely crucial. And the other is, you know, in recruiting participants into research studies, there's a lot of work that goes into that. And, you know, our research operations team is really critical in, in making sure that, you know, our researchers um, are able to engage with the right people and get the right feedback. Uh, and, um, and so, you know, those folks are really critical to that process as well. So one other component of, of scaling is obviously hiring folks. And, um, 
you wrote, wrote another piece about hiring in, in hard to staff areas and uh, pulling another quote, uh, you, you said that the most fundamental tool for fixing a staffing problem is effective storytelling. Build a strong, inspiring narrative about the work your team is doing and how it fits into the overall company mission. What are some, some concrete ways that a design leaders can tell a better story about the work their team does? I mean, I have to say, I think it is the number one most important thing you can do is have a story around what you're doing, for whom, and why. <laughs> it's so basic, but it's something that sometimes people just skip over. They think it's obvious, um, or you know, they feel like they shouldn't have to, or that they would rather just be doing the design work. And you know, I discovered in certainly when we we're building up the design team on the business side. And now that I'm working in some new areas, artificial intelligence, among other things, like that's a story that needs to be intentionally told. You know, what does design and artificial intelligence mean? You know, we're all as an industry at the very beginning of that learning curve. And, you know, not only does it help solidify the team identity and pride in what they're doing, focus and priorities, which is one of the most important things that leadership can do is give a sense of focus and priorities to a team. Um, but it also helps tell that story to the outside world. You know, when you're looking to attract talent, you can say, hey, this is our story. This is what we're trying to do. Is this appealing and exciting to you? Because if so, we should talk. Um, as opposed to, you know, just relying on, um, you know, you know, some kind of generic sense of what an organization might be doing, really getting into um, a, a crisp story around that. Because, you know, for a company like Facebook, we have an, an unbelievable breadth of and variety of projects that are going on. There is no single story. I mean, you could come here and work on AR and VR. You could work on our connectivity projects. Um, we, you could come and work on, you know, donations for nonprofits or artificial intelligence or the newsfeed. And every single one of those areas you know, has a different, um, you know, core story associated with it, what it's trying to bring to the world. And, you know, I, I think organizations uh, reap so much benefit when we, when we have a crisp story to tell that makes us uh, proud of our work and, you know, attracts and retains great talent to it. Speaking of, uh, you know, all these different teams, uh, one thing that we see a lot with scaling design teams is that they're spread across on different projects and different locations. And that creates a real challenge for the design team and for the design leaders to try to create some, you know, unified sense of culture, um, how we work together, what's sort of the, 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 the base of tools and, and processes that we agree upon and we use to march towards some common goal. How do you solve that problem with such a huge organization? Yeah. Well, I think being a mission-oriented company, uh, that helps a lot because the one thing that everyone here has in common is the Facebook mission. And so, you know, when, when in doubt, go back to the mission and work back from there. And so for us, you know, it's giving people the power to share and build community and bringing the world closer together. Those are kind of the core things that we're all here to do. And so then we ask ourselves, all right, how is design and user research going to help facilitate that mission? And how does that look differently in the different parts of the business? So I think, you know, having a, a mission for the overall organization that you're a part of really creates that connective tissue. 
And I think beyond that, it's about cultivating curiosity and connection between the different areas of the company. So for instance, you know, there's a lot of collaboration. I'll, I'll get back to the team, one of the teams that I'm working a lot with right now, which is the artificial intelligence team. We interface with a lot of teams across the company, helping leverage the Facebook AI's technology into the whole you know, Facebook family of apps. And so making sure that we have the relationships in place so that that collaboration can happen in effective ways is really important. So it means you know, that we, for instance, might create a, a community of interest um, uh, on, on a particular topic that pulls people from different areas, like we have a, an internal community around internal tools development. And there's pockets of people who work on internal tools all across the company, and it's something that they have in common, even though they're not in the same organization. And that becomes a very high signal community to create and connections that can be leveraged for product and design work down the road. So I think finding the things that connect people outside of the organizational lines is really effective. And then also, again, leveraging the mission that we all have in common. So... Um that that mission and the way that it aligns the, the different teams you're working with um, kind of ties into this next question a bit, which is, you know, there, there's a lot of different products within Facebook the teams are working on, and the design of those products is potentially a very you know deep area of exploration. You could ask about things like how should ads get targeted, or should mes uh, Messenger be a separate app as a design question, and they're also product strategy questions. So where does product strategy end and design begin, or how do those two mesh, and, and how deep does the design really go at Facebook? I'm not sure we differentiate between design and product strategy, to be honest with you. Um, design is always a part of the core team from the beginning and is seen as an integral factor in determining not just how we execute on an idea, but what we should build in the first place. And of course, design and user research as critical elements in understanding the people for whom we are designing. You know, we really try to first and foremost focus on what are the real people problems we're looking to solve. That's how we avoid falling into the trap of technology for technology's sake. And, uh, and if we constantly put people at the center of what we're doing, um, we are going to much more likely come up with solutions that help people and communities thrive around the world. And so, we, I think, have a pretty strong culture of making sure that there is no kind of like handoff, like someone comes up with the vision and then hands it off to design to design. It's like, no, we've got design and research and product management and engineering all together with a, you know, an overall sense of, you know, what we're looking to do. And then we really dive in on who are we designing this thing for and what are the critical things that they need and what's a roadmap moving out from there. So I, I don't think that there is like a, a, a clean distinction. And sometimes, you know, often you have a product manager take the lead on determining product vision, but sometimes designers do. And that's like totally fine and accepted. Sometimes it's an engineer, sometimes it's a data scientist. We don't have... I think in a good way, um, rigid uh, roles around like who takes the lead on what. Sometimes it's just about who has the most energy and passion and context and, uh, you know, who's willing to kind of put the sweat equity in to get to that shared understanding. So we hear a lot of companies um, spinning up 
design education efforts, which is probably associated with design operations that not only solving a lot of uh, program issues and just, you know, team challenges and so forth, but also, um, you know, education of like keeping up with um, what's happening in the industry. There's a lot of things happening, but also just ensuring that uh, a massive team uh, continues to, to move forward and, and people feel like there's growth and they want to continue in this, this role. Um, can you talk about how um, your team um, addresses this? Is there some sort of ongoing design education effort inside of Facebook? Yeah, so I think education is like a, uh, it's a pretty big theme uh, within the company in general. And I would say there's the hard skills and the soft skills side. And I, 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 I really want to hit on both because I think it's, uh, it, it, it's incredibly important for people's professional development to not only develop their professional technical hard skills, but also to get that soft skills training. So I'll start with the hard skills and then I'll talk a little bit about the soft skills side. So for hard skills, when people join the company, they go through um, multiple weeks of onboarding in a program we call Design Camp that gives them full orientation across the whole company and then deep dives into the design systems and the tools that we use, You know, whether it's the prototyping systems that we use or the design component systems that we've developed. It really helps give people a comfort level for when they get assigned that first starter project and they have some context around how they're going to engage. Um, and then there is ongoing training. So you can, you know, learn different development environments or learn new prototyping techniques or, you know, learn uh, about different, um, you know, kind of ways of approaching design problem solving through either, you know, programs and teachers that we bring in house or we have budget for people to take coursework um, outside as a part of their professional development. Um, getting back to the, the knitting thing and creative outlets um, the Analog Research Laboratory, which is a part of my organization as well, offers, you know, things like hand lettering or sign making or woodworking or printmaking as, um, you know, a way for people to engage in handcrafted work. Um, and that's not just for designers, that's for people, um, you know, in any discipline to kind of get in and to make things with their hands. So tons of opportunities for people to develop their skill set, um, you know, as a designer or a researcher or what have you. On the soft skills side, we really, really uh, have like we have really robust offerings on that. Whether it's diversity training, helping people understand unconscious bias and manage that in the workplace, we have a very strong commitment to this um, this uh, course uh, uh, called Crucial Conversations, which you may have heard of. There's like a, books available about it, but it's really about engaging in difficult conversations at work, which, as we all know, is something that holds lots of people back. Whether it's having a tough conversation with a colleague about you know something you disagree about, um, it could be about the work, it could be about the way that you're collaborating, and so. I think it's really important for people to understand that their development is not just, you know, whether they know how to use, you know, the latest prototyping tool, but can they collaborate and communicate effectively with the people on their team? Because software development is a team sport. Like, in reality, you can be the most talented person and be off the charts on the hard skills. But if you are a person that people don't want to work with, you will not get things done. And so it's just super important to look at kind of those, um, both of those modes in order to really grow people. That's great. I think that's a, a good place to wrap up. Before you go, though, um, just wanted to ask, could you tell us a little bit about either what you're reading right now or books that have been helpful over your career? 
Well, it's funny because I'm dyslexic, so <laughs> I don't actually read that many books, but I listen to a lot of books. Audiobooks have become a really important source of learning for me because I'm extremely curious about a lot of things, but I'm not that good at getting through physical text. Um, right now, I'm kind of in a mode of really being interested in autobiographies that are voiced by the person uh, themselves. And so I'm listening to the autobiography by Noah Trevor um, uh, called Born a Crime about him being born in South Africa. And that is fascinating. I'm also like kind of swapping back and forth between that and an autobiography of uh, Bruce Springsteen. Um, I'm just super interested in people's life stories and in particular creative people and what has gotten them to the point where they are the types of storytellers that they are because there's always a backstory to that. Um, but, uh, I am looking for, um, some novel suggestions for an upcoming vacation. So if you have any suggestions, please send them my way. <laughs> the Walter Isaacson, uh, biography of Ben Franklin is, is interesting. He, he's a, he's a strange fella. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Uh, yeah. The more you dig into the details on that one, you're like, whoa, that's, <laughs> it's yes. interesting. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Margaret Gould Stewart, uh, VP of Broadcast Science Facebook. Thanks so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.